If you want to turn in your Bibles this morning to Numbers chapter 12, we're going to be reading pretty much that whole chapter in our study for today. We're going to continue our series on the three thieves of thanksgiving, or the three thieves that take away our ability to be a thankful people. We'll be focusing on envy this morning. Dwight L. Moody, the great evangelist from Chicago, once told a story of an eagle who was envious of another eagle that could fly a lot better than he could. And one day the, the envious bird saw a hunter with a bow and an arrow, and it went to the hunter and said, I wish you could shoot down that other eagle over there, because then I would be the best eagle around. The man said, you know what, I think I can help you with that, but the problem is, is the feathers on my bow won't quite reach up that far and, and hit that bird because he's flying a little higher than you. If you give me some of your, you know, a feather or two, I can make up a new arrow that'll reach up to that bird. So the jealous eagle said, well, that seems like a good idea. So he, and he just plucks three feathers out of his wing. Well, the arrow was shot and it didn't quite reach up to that rival, bull, that rival bird because he was flying way too high. So the, the envious eagle pulls out some more feathers and more feathers and more feathers. Keep giving him the archer to try to, to knock down the other eagle. And pretty soon he, he'd taken out so many feathers that he himself couldn't fly away anymore. And the hunter saw that and grabbed that, evil, that eagle and killed him. Moody made this application. He said, if you are envious of others, the one you will be hurt most by your actions will be yourself. Today we're going to be continuing our series on being thankful by studying the second thing that will steal your ability to be thankful, and that is envy. Last week we talked about the dangers of comparison. As bad as comparison can be, it's only the doorway to a larger problem, and that problem is envy. Envy and its close cousin jealousy are not just the attributes of those who don't know Jesus or those who are young in the faith. Envy sneaks its way into each of our hearts, even if we've been following Christ for years. In this story that we're about to read today, you have three people involved in this biblical account which takes place several years after the exodus um, of Israel from Egypt. You have the high priest of Israel, Aaron. You have one of the best-known prophetesses in Israel. Her name was Miriam. And you have them both publicly criticizing the leader of Israel during that time, which was Moses. So you have both the man and the woman who hold the, pre the positions of high priest and prophet giving a rebuke to their leader. In our context, if this was going to happen today, it would be like the church board bringing a rebuke against the pastor of the church. Now, if the pastor were in sin, the church board would have that duty. And it's the responsibility of them to do just that. They, the responsibility of the board, the elders, the deacons, whatever you want to call them within whatever polity you're using, is to protect the body of believers from a, a shepherd that might be going astray. And that's what's happening, kind of, within Numbers chapter 12 here. But we're going to see that it is really not the case. So we're going to read Numbers chapter 12, um, pretty much the entire chapter. Sorry we couldn't get it on the back of the bulletin, but it's a little bit too long for that. So you have to look at it in your Bible. 
Here we go. Numbers chapter 12, verses 1. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the, all three of them went out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud, and he stood at the entrance of the tent, and he summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of them stepped forward, he said, Listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The angel of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. When the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became white as snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had a defiling skin disease. And he said to Moses, Please, my Lord, I ask you not to hold this sin against us that we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming out of its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. So Moses cried out to the Lord, Oh God, please, please heal her. The Lord replied to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, would she not have been a disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days, and after that she can be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until she was brought back. Let's pray. Father God, I ask, Lord, that as we study this scripture that you have given us this morning, that we will see the dangers of envy and of jealousy in our lives through what Miriam and Aaron did to Moses. I ask, Father, that you just open up our hearts to places within our own life and our own spirits where this sin may be lurking so that it can be exposed, so that we can repent of it, and so that we can live a life that is pleasing to you, Lord. And not only pleasing to you, but winsome to other people out there in the community we live in. Father God, I ask all this through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Before we read today's scripture, we acknowledge that Miriam and Aaron, as spiritual leaders, even had the right and even the responsibility to both advise and to rebuke Moses if, and that big word is if, he fell into sin. In this case, they accuse him of marrying outside of the tribe of Israel. Although the Bible doesn't record the event, we can assume that his first wife, Zipporah, had died at this point. Keep in mind that Moses, even at 85 years old, he's a healthy man. He has a normal drive. He's probably 40 in, in real years, but he's being supernaturally maintained by God in order to, to uh, lead Israel during their time in the desert. And you're thinking, he's 85 years old, he doesn't need a wife, but he really does in this case, because it's going to be 35 years still before he dies. 
That's something to consider is that, you know, you think he's 85 years old, what's he need a wife for? He's still got 35 years left because he lives to 120. Most marriages in our time don't even last half as long as 35 years. And besides, somebody's got to cook him supper, right? Oh, God. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Miriam and Aaron were appealing to God's law. They were pointing out God's law to the people. In Deuteronomy 7, it commanded them not to marry outside of the tribe when they came into the promised land, specifically with the Canaanites. And the reason that the law was placed into there is because the Canaanites were to be completely and totally wiped out because they were so evil that God wanted them just purged from the earth. So this law had to deal with intermarriage with them, not necessarily outside of the nation of Israel at that time. However, this was not the case with Moses, as the woman that he took was from the area of Cush. Cush is where we would find modern Ethiopia. In other words, Moses married a black woman. And that raises a question we should answer before we continue. Why did Moses marry outside of the nation of Israel? Well, the very short answer is the Bible really doesn't say, so we can't say with any certainty. But practically, as I was thinking about this, sitting out there and hunting and, and thinking through the, the uh, scripture that we're going to preach through this week, I think practically there's a few reasons why he chose to go outside of the nation of Israel. The first and foremost, any children that may have been born of this wife would be barred from entering into the full fellowship of being, Israel, of being Hebrew. They would have been just kind of on the outside. They could have joined the Jewish nation. They could have lived there. They could have more or less gotten a green card, as we would um, understand it in our context. But they would never be full citizens of Israel and therefore ineligible for any type of leadership. I believe Moses was actually very intentional in avoiding his family having a say or becoming a ruling dynasty of kings over Israel. Because most people would want that king. You remember a few years later, they asked for a king. And so Moses, being the most humble man on earth, decides that I am going to blow up any chance of my line usurping power inside of Israel and especially overtaking Aaron's line for the position of high priest. I'm going to make sure there is no way that could possibly happen. And the scripture is very, very careful here to include the phrase about Moses' humility. Had he been a proud man, had this been all about him, he would have had multiple sons with this Cushite woman. Or he would have had multiple sons with a Hebrew woman and established his kingship and dynasty over Israel. But because Moses was submitted to God, the wife he chose avoided all of these entanglements. Now Miriam didn't like this. Miriam didn't like this at all. So she comes up with the accusation. It seemed like Miriam was the ringleader through all of this because she was the one that was most directly punished. But why did she do it? Why did she care who her brother marries? Why was Miriam so filled with envy and jealousy that she tried to even cause a rebellion within Israel? Well, let's look at some of the possible reasons she did so. It should be noticed that Miriam is Moses' big sister. She's older than he is, probably by at least 10 years. Anybody here have a domineering big sister in, in life? 
Tammy's the biggest sister in her family, and I watch her with, interact with Kevin, and she's more of a mom than she is a sister to him on most days. I'm not saying you're domineering, dear, but you are. Um, but you see this in, a, in I've seen this in several families where the firstborn is a female, that they really take a leadership role in their family. And this, this is what Miriam was doing with Moses here. Remember back to her childhood? I mean, this is probably Miriam's mindset. She remembers back to her childhood and remembered the command of Pharaoh. All Hebrew male children had to be put to death. Moses never would have made it out of infancy if it wouldn't have been for Miriam. If Miriam hadn't put him into that basket and floated him down to Pharaoh's daughter, Moses would have been wiped out and they would still be in Egypt. We assume since Zipporah had died at this point, Miriam was probably then the one taking care of Moses. She's probably been doing the cooking, the cleaning, taking care of the tent, running the servants. There's no doubt she loved her little brother and wanted him taken care of, but she probably got very comfortable in that role. Because this would have also included controlling access to Moses, being that person behind the person in charge that controls access. And that's a considerable position of power when you think of it, because you'd have to go through her first to even see Moses. And then, all of a sudden, she's enjoying all of these things, and then comes this Cushite woman. And now Miriam loses this position. She is... She is kicked out of the tent and put back into her own tent, and now this Cushite woman becomes his wife. Do you understand why she did what she did a little bit better now? She had her reasons for doing it. I mean, put yourself in her place. Not only has she been replaced, not only has she lost her position of promise or prominence, and not only has Mo Moses kicked her to a curb, but he did it with a black woman. He did it with somebody who is not a descendant of Jacob, somebody who didn't even look like the rest of them, someone who's much darker. There's an aspect of racism here toward anyone who is not a descendant of Jacob. And her feelings here are not the problem. I can empathize to a large degree of her feeling the way that she felt. It's her response to her feelings that becomes a problem. We can't always help how we feel about something but we can help and we can control our reactions. In her case, she goes out and gets her other little brother, Aaron. By the way, Aaron is also older than Moses. And in that society, that means a lot. He is the elder brother and he is still subservient to his little brother. She gets Aaron to take up her case and go to the people and try to embarrass Moses so he'll get rid of this new wife. And I went through Miriam's re reasons to help show you this. People have reasons for the things they do, especially the things they do to you. When people react in envy, they react in jealousy, they react in backbiting, slander, gossip, all those other kind of things, they do it out of a deep place of hurt and brokenness within themselves. And I would say most, if not all, of the evil that exists within each one of us that drives us toward actions that don't honor God come from places of deep hurt within our spirits. Miriam's actions are recorded for us so that we can hold her up and see ourselves in her, not just cluck our tongues, not just criticize some poor woman that lived in the Bronze Age, but to see ourselves in her actions. And Miriam is an example to us of the dangers of envy and jealousy. Miriam's situation and the response 
that she had can teach us about allowing these emotions to fill our hearts and our minds. Miriam, in this case, has allowed her heart to focus on things that are not pleasing to God and has started down a road that led to a pretty serious reaction from God, her father. The first thing she allowed these emotions to do, and especially this emotion of envy to do, is to elevate herself. Look what she points out to the people. She asks the question, has God only spoke through Moses? In other words, look at me. Look at how God has used me. Look at how God has, has used me in Moses' life. I mean, after all, I saved his life. I made sure that he even knew that he was a Hebrew. I went and got his mother, brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, made him the wetner, made her the wetner so that he could be instilled with Hebrew values. I'm his sister. I, I, I have influence. I have some authority. God even uses me to, 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 to lead worship. And I'm a big deal. I'm a big deal. And Miriam fell into the trap of allowing her gifts and position and how God has used her in the past to lead her to assume she has a high position of authority within Israel, even over the top of God's appointed leader. In the church, we can see this quite often. Sometimes a person with a gift will use that gift to draw to themselves a crowd and then use that crowd to try to usurp and bring down lawful authority. The, one of the things the Bible calls that is the Jezebel spirit, one that falsely elevates human gifts to take people's eyes off of spiritual and biblical authority. Tammy and I, and I'm assuming many people here, if you've been around the church for any length of time, we've seen that kind of spirit destroy churches. That's why among the most critical instructions in spiritual leadership that the Apostle Paul passes on to his student pastor Timothy in uh, 1 and 2 Timothy is to lay hands on no person suddenly. In other words, be very, very slow to elevate anybody in the church to a position of prominence and leadership. A person that desires a position of prominence or recognition in the church, you have to slowly elevate them and examine that person. That's why the Assembly of God has something called the Certified Minister. It gives you a ministerial credential so that you can be watched and trained up and make sure that you are fit for the ministry. A, pa a pastor once had a student minister assigned to him by his denomination for a, a period of internship over the summer. The pastor immediately noticed that this young man shied away from doing what this student considered menial tasks. Doing things like emptying garbages or putting away ch chairs after meetings or helping to clean the bathroom. During his weekly evaluation of this student, the pastor brought up how people were starting to notice his reluctance to help out with, with anything unless it was him up front and, and being seen by people. Well, the young minister replied, Pastor, I spent the last six years in college and in seminary. I don't know if you know this, but I'm a PhD candidate right now. Such work is beneath my education. It's beneath my station in life and beneath the calling of a pastor within a church. Pastor stood up and asked the young student minister to follow him outside into the parking lot. And he walked over to a large pothole that was near the entrance they had in the parking lot. And he asked the young minister what he saw. He said, well, I see a, a giant hole in the pavement. We should have somebody come and fix that. 
Well, the pastor responded with the words from my, of Isaiah from chapter 40 that says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain be made low. And every un the uneven ground become level and the rough places a plain. The pastor continued saying, Son, our job is to make the way smooth to Jesus Christ for our people. We are to remove every obstacle that would keep people from coming into a deeper relationship with our Lord and Savior. That means you have to be willing to do whatever it takes, even if it meant laying yourself down in this pothole so people can get into the parking lot and find Jesus for themselves. If you are not ready to do that, then you need to leave the ministry. Elevating oneself is a desire for fame and recognition, which we said yet last week is really the desire to be worshipped. And that's the second thing that envy and jealousy feeds, is it feeds selfishness. If you get nothing else out of today's message, write this down and post it where you can see it often. Selfishness is really self-worship. It's elevating your needs and desires above what is best for others, and especially what is best for God's kingdom. Because once you start down that path of self-worship, it gives you an excuse to rebel because you have lifted yourself up above everyone else. It causes you to rebel against authority. We're going to read a verse in just a moment that most people would not put on their social media walls. You won't find it often quoted in a Facebook wall or a tweet. And it's not one that people commit to memory and pull out when times get tough. But it's an essential truth and an essential thought for us who want to live lives that God has called us to, to live and be blessed in his kingdom. And that is Hebrews 13, 17. It says, Obey them that have rule over you and submit yourselves. For they watch over your souls as they who must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you. What he's saying here is if you rebel against an authority, it's talking about the church here, but this really has to do with all of your life. If there is someone in authority and you are rebelling against them, God, you have to remember that God has placed this authority in your life. And if you rebel, you're not really making your life difficult. You're crushing any chance that God can bless yours. And in the case of Mary and her rebellion against her little brother threatened an entire nation. You remember the, the children of Israel, they were rebellious to begin with. Remember what happened when Moses went up on the the mountain for 40 days to, to get the law from God. Aaron went, converted from a priest of Yahweh to a priest of Baal and led idol worship services that just about had the entire nation destroyed. Now Moses' sister is starting to stir up trouble, which is why God dealt with this immediately and very forcefully. Because God knows the human heart. God knows that rebellion left unchecked will spread to others. The thought that Moses was in sin would have spread throughout the camp. If Miriam can get away with this, 
then I should be able to get away with this. That would have been the thought within the camp. So God gave immediate consequences. And let's look at God's reaction to Miriam's rebellion. What were her consequences? First, what was hidden inside worked its way out and everybody could see it on the outside. That ugliness of sin, something that she had previously hidden in her heart, was shown now for what it is, and that is death. In the Bronze Age that this event took place in, leprosy was a death sentence, and it was a very slow death sentence at that. Today we call it Hansen's disease. It still exists today. But it's no longer a huge threat on the earth because it can be cured with antibiotics. However, in the Bronze Age, it was a highly contagious pathogen that if left unchecked could easily spread through an entire community. And when you read through the first five books of the Bible, particularly Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, there's quite a bit of talk in there about various skin diseases and ways to tell if it was something leprous or if it was just a bad zit. Not only that, they had a lot of rules about washing and isolation, burning clothes, smashing pots, anything that came into contact with a suspected skin disease because people so feared this disease, leprosy. And the Bible uses leprosy as a type or an example of what sin lurking beneath the surface does in our lives. Leprosy is a slow killer. Leprosy first attacks the nerves in your fingers and toes and face and anything that doesn't have a lot of blood supply. It starts by taking away the sensation of pain so that you can injure these areas without even knowing it. You could smash your thumb with a hammer and not feel it. And that would cause a secondary infection that will rot that, that, that appendage or, or that piece of body right off. And sin works the same way. Unrepented and repeated sin numbs you to the serious consequences of your rebellion until it's too late and you lose whatever you had in God up until that point. Miriam's leprosy is a picture to all of Israel and to us today that sin is nothing to play with. It is incredibly dangerous to our spiritual health. As the old preachers used to say, you can't dance with the devil and then try to hold hands with Jesus. A person cannot serve two masters. And if you keep trying to live a double life, you're going to find yourself in the second part of Miriam's punishment, which was isolation. God had decreed that anybody with any infectious skin disease had to be put outside the camp for at least seven days. It wasn't just Miriam, it was anybody with an infectious skin disease. So Miriam was banished and forced to live alone for an entire week. And one of the worst punishments you can give a person is isolation. What do they do in prison when somebody acts out? Put them in the hole, right? Solitary confinement. Why do they do that? Because it works. People hate being isolated. We're social creatures. And Miriam especially was probably a very well-known and, and, and very social person. And for her, isolation was one of the best, or excuse me, the worst uh, punishments she could have gotten. One second, she's known by everybody. Next second, nobody wants to be anywhere near her. And suddenly, she's alone in a tent, a week's worth of food and water at her feet, at the mercy of her brother's forgiveness. If Moses doesn't beg God for her restoration, this is Miriam's life until she dies. 
alone in a tent with people leaving some food, uh, you know, 10, 15 yards away from the tent and running in the opposite direction so they don't get anywhere near her. Envy and jealousy can do that to us. I've seen it happen over and over again in life, in the workplace, in social life, or in friends. I've seen envy and jealousy do this so many times. It places us on an island of our own making when all we can think about is what we don't have and what we want and how others have what we want. And that's all that, that we can focus on. And if we allow ourselves to continue with that, we end up covered in the evidence of our sin and isolated from all those who should matter to us. And most of all, you fail to receive the fullness of God's blessing on your life when you live like this. So how do we fix it? Number one, we cultivate humility. We be like Moses. The Bible says Moses was the most humble man on the entire earth. That's a heck of a thing for Holy Scripture to say about a person. The most humble man that had ever lived. But there's one who came later that beats him in this area. The Apostle Paul describes a character our Lord Jesus showed us. And being followers of Christ, this is a character that we are to show the world. Let's all rise as I read this last scripture as a prayer for us to consider as we prepare to close today. I'm going to read from Philippians 2, verse 5. Everybody just close your eyes and listen to the words of Scripture. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, who though he was in the, ver the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to become, and by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 